This is what makes Christianity different from all the other religions of the world. It's, it's very simple. All the other religions say, come do this and then you'll get something. Jesus shows up. He says, I'm here to give you something. Now we can get into why that means you're sinful and unclean. And John, in his first letter, will talk about that. We can get into why justification by grace through faith is the only way that this could happen to sinners like us. And John will allude to that with his talk about propitiation. But from the beginning, don't miss the distinction. Jesus is here to save, not to ask you to sacrifice. Will there be sacrifice in this life? Absolutely. Is there suffering contingent upon believing in the wisdom from on high? Absolutely. But that too is his gift. It's the gift he gives that the rest of the world is always trying to run away from. They're trying to hide from it. Solomon says in his books of wisdom that when you get wisdom, it will increase suffering. He says that. Having wisdom means your eyes will be open and you will see the suffering. You'll be unable to avoid the fact that you are suffering. The fool says, huh, then I'll be a fool instead since wisdom brings suffering. Do you see how foolish that is? He won't actually escape the suffering. He'll just be blind to its consequences. And he'll chase a wide and easy road into his own destruction by his own hands. But the wisdom from on high, which is pure, says far better to walk in what really is with my eyes open, confessing who I am, knowing who my God is, and that he is for me and not against me, than to fall into that deception which seems so easy. Now, as we look at 1 John this morning, John's language is going to be very, very narrow. He speaks in these big terms that are so simple that they're almost, they're hard to reckon with. And again, there's so much in this book that I just can't possibly begin to prepare you for reading it. And part of that is because he's going to take these very simple terms, very narrow terms. He's going to do wide things with it. And then he's going to talk in big circles, huge circles, to the point where he'll say one thing over here. And then over here, he'll say what seems to be the opposite. And what you want to do is not grab onto either one as if it destroys the other, but as if both are part of the entire truth. I'll give you an example in a text we won't look at. He says that when you're a Christian, you'll never sin again. You take that verse by itself, you're going to be like, wow, I guess I'm not a Christian. But then he also says, if any Christian does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So which is it? Are you forgiven when you sin or will you never sin again? And what he wants is for you to understand the tension, right? That you've been saved from sin by Jesus, that you don't want to sin anymore. That in fact, when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin at all. And yet when we together find our evil breaking out against each other, we always have more forgiveness because God is always here in Christ to save you from what you find in yourself. Now, I'll try to bring as much of this out as I can as we move through the text. You can find 1 John on page 1021 in your pew Bible in front of you. I really encourage you to follow along today, especially because of the way the language is going to work. 
We're going to look at all of chapter 1 up to chapter 2, verse 2 to start. And then we'll see where our time is and see if we, we have to kind of collapse the back end from there. But this is the thing too. If you read a whole chapter of First John, you kind of read the whole book. Because he's talking in these circles. And the circle keeps expanding and contracting and expanding and contracting. Which is why to read the whole book straight through in half an hour or 40 minutes on a Thursday evening or afternoon is really to get the whole thing. If you just grab a verse here and there, you aren't quite getting what John wants to give. Yeah, Not that you don't get any of it. Don't get me wrong. You know, go read a couple of verses. That's better than reading none this week. But chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, verse 2 is going to give you a, a big dose of this. All right. Here we go. Uh, I'm just going to read the first few verses. 1 verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, I hope one of the first things you notice is just how poetic it is. I mean, John is, is crafting this with beauty. And you may have a little resonance with a couple of things. Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning. Yeah. But then also John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Right? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John is the same author of that book. Right? And he is playing on this idea that there's something old about Christianity. It's not new. It's older than earth itself, and it's certainly older than the fall, and it's ultimately older than the New Testament, because the New Testament is just the fulfillment of the Old Testament. There is nothing that changes in the Word of God. We're the ones that change. We're the ones that have the darkness. He'll talk about that in a moment. We're the ones that have the decay. But for Christ and His truth, it is always the same. The world has been designed a certain way. And even though we broke it, it still works that way. And Jesus wants to redeem it. He has redeemed it in the same way, by the same kind of truth, by speaking a word that makes it happen. So let there be light made the world work a certain way. And now I forgive you actually redeems you. That's a creative word. Okay, so let's look at these verses a little bit at a time. I'm not going to spend too much time on verse 1. It's so pretty, though. Yeah, That which we have touched with our hands. He's talking about how he saw Jesus. The word by which the heavens were made has become a man and spoken with him. They hung out by the seashore. They rode together on a boat. He watched him do miracles. He leaned against his back in the upper room on the night when he was betrayed. This life who is a man, Jesus Christ, was made manifest. That is incarnate. He was here in our midst and we have seen it again. He's an eyewitness. 
to both his death and resurrection and testify. Again, he says, I'm the witness. Many people ask, where's the sign? Show me God and I'll believe in God. I said to God, make proof of yourself for me. They didn't do it. And so I don't believe anymore. This is the witness. One sign, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, seen by over 500 people and plus more than that in the days when it happened, written down by more witnesses than any court of law would really need to make the case, and now proclaimed through history again. It is a proof, although I wouldn't say it's the final proof, but the fact that Christianity is still convicting people tells you how true it is. All the other religions give you a philosophy and they have to show you how it works. So do this and it'll work out. Christianity just says, he is risen. He is risen. Alleluia. And it starts to change things. It starts to make stuff happen. Yeah. So the eternal life is proclaimed. This Jesus who was with the father and then became incarnate was made manifest to us. Verse three, which we have seen and heard again, we proclaim to you. So the point was not just for the salvation of John or for the salvation of the Jews, but for you. And that's a plural word, right? It's talking about you, the whole church on earth throughout history, but that doesn't disclude you, the individual person sitting here at St. Paul right now. It's proclaimed to you so that you might have fellowship with those who saw him raised from the dead. That word fellowship is a fascinating one. You might notice, I never call that multi-purpose back room back there, the fellowship hall. That's probably what it was originally called when it was made, but I, I never call it that. I call it the parish hall, or now I just kind of like back room because you know when we have our meetings in the back room, it, it sounds kind of mafia-like. It's a little fun. But uh, it, anyway, the, the point is that uh, a fellowship is a biblical word. And when the word in the Bible is used, it isn't ever talking about eating dinner for fun or having meetings about the budget. It's actually talking about the Lord's Supper almost every single time, especially in 1 Corinthians. But John has the same idea. Now, also what will help here is to know what the word means. I used to really struggle with it because I was like, fellowship? What does it have to do with boats? Huh? What's a ship got to do with anything? That doesn't make any sense. And the reason that the word ship is on the back of the word fellow, which you probably know a fellow is like a, a friend usually, right? Someone who's near you, a neighbor, okay? Um, why is the word ship there? This is nerd stuff here. It's because English is a really weird language. It's made up of like four different languages that all had wars and then sat on each other for hundreds of years. And so you have some words in our language that are from one other language and some that are from a different under, other language. If they happen to be the same sounds, English doesn't care. It just uses them anyway. And so the word ship comes from one language. And then the word ship, as in fellowship, comes from a different language. We don't use the word to mean what it used to mean anymore, but we do. Because we still have the word shape, which ironically is part of the word ship shape, which is really kind of funny. But the word shape is the, is the modern version of the word ship in fellowship. So if when you see the word fellowship, you think fellow shape, it starts to make sense that you are in the same shape as something, okay? So now John is saying he writes so that you will be in the same shape he is in. And what is that shape? Those who have seen the word of life, those who have heard what it means, those who have touched 
Jesus. And that's why the Lord's Supper is such a part of being in fellowship. Because there is where, according to his gift, under bread and wine, you do not only touch him, but he enters into you to make you a new person, to cleanse you with his very blood, right? So we proclaim it so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy, he means him and you, can be complete. That we would look up past this fading world and see the goodness of what is to come and then live that goodness now rather than wait and despair like everyone else who's wallowing in the muck because they have no hope. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now I think John when he says this is the message means what he just said. And what he's about to say, they're both the message, and this is the circles he's starting to write, right? He's got a tension between we proclaim fellowship and God is light without darkness. When he starts talking about light and darkness, you can understand this as being metaphorical language. It's symbolic. What's also important is that it's very, very old. The Bible and its cosmology goes way beyond the idea that we live on earth. And there's a sun and earth goes around the sun and then we're in the Milky Way and there's stars far off. It's not that that's not true, but that's not the only way to think about our relationship with the sun and the earth. Because so far as your life is concerned, even though you're on a planet that's spinning so that as you go around the sun, you're actually spinning so that the sun shows up every so often. That's true, but that's not how you experience it. You experience it that the sun comes up over there and then it runs around you and it chases down and runs back up around again. Yeah, that's not what physically is happening, but it's what cosmologically is happening. That is your perception of the universe is like that. The Bible thinks and talks that way. And so when it talks about light and darkness, this isn't just a symbol. It is about how you experience life. And the promise here is that when you have God, when the true God's words are coming into your ears, into your eyes, into your heart, you will see as if you have the lights on in your house. And there will be no darkness. There'll be no deception. There'll be no confusion. If you find that, that's in you. It's not in God, right? So again, this is the promise that there is a difference between having the true God and not having the true God. If you have the true God in what he gives, there is no darkness at all. But verse six, if we say we have a fellow shape with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I know you have heard people say, I believe in God. And then they don't go to church any church. Or maybe they even say, I believe in God. She's amazing. Huh? Okay. So that means they lie. That means they walk in darkness. Don't forget what James has said. The demons, the demons believe in God and they get scared when they remember it. What's amazing about godless men is they have no fear of God. So they'll say they believe in God, blaspheming about what they do not know, and they'll do so fearlessly. They then walk in darkness. And again, imagine being at home 
Last night, you woke up, it's 1 a.m., and you've got to go to the bathroom. It happens, right? And you're probably good enough to be able to get there without turning the lights on because it's your home. Now imagine that you're at somebody else's house. Does it help to have a little light? Yes. And this is the idea again. The light that God shines on your life through the word of God opens up your eyes so that you do not stumble. That is, you aren't going to kick your foot against things you don't need to kick your foot against. Does that mean you'll never suffer? No, I didn't say that. Does it mean you're not going to fall into the lies? Yes. You're going to know truth from falsehood. You're going to smell the deceiver when he shows up. Yes. If we walk in light, verse 7, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with each other. That is, we believe the same things. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I'm not going to go into a long tangent on this, but the blood of Jesus, propitiation, he bought you with it. When he's on the cross and they're nailing his hands and the stripes on his side are bleeding down and they pierce him in the side and the blood and the water flow. That's like when you go to the store and you run your credit card to buy the groceries. Only it's God doing that to buy you in his cosmology, which works on better things than American credit, for sure. It works on eternal things like the blood of God himself. All right. So then verse eight and nine should be very familiar to you if you're used to using the hymnal as a Lutheran, because our divine services one and two will quote this as part of our confession and absolution. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, verse 10 also says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. There is a circle again here, but let's just take it a little piece at a time. If you say you have no sin within you, you say you're perfect. You lived a perfect life. If you say every day I managed to avoid sin, you're just a liar. You're just a liar. That's all it is. Is that clear? Is that simple? The truth does not abide in you. But if you confess I'm a sinner. I know it. I see it. And I don't want it. Right? It's not, I'm a sinner. Yay. It's, I'm a sinner. This is sad. It's, I lose control of my tongue. I don't want to. It's, my heart tells me to do things that I don't want to do. If you confess that, which first just means acknowledge it. And then as we go within the church, of course, we speak it to God publicly. And you do always have the freedom to tell me personally, Pastor, I sinned and I'll forgive you. If we confess it, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from this unrighteousness. So you have this kind of dual reality here. You have those who don't think they're sinners and they're just liars walking in darkness. And you have those who acknowledge the world has fallen. I'm part of the world and we walk in freedom, completely cleansed from our sins, even while we still find it within us. Because if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar again and we don't know his word. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I think the hardest part in there is the word sin. And some of you have heard me talk about this before. I'll probably need to talk about it regularly for a while. That 
the word sin doesn't make sense in English anymore. It has no roots. Like fellowship, we don't, what, why, where'd that come from? What does it mean? You kind of know it means something bad, but there's no like reference to connect it to. And I really do find the Old Testament original word to be very helpful in this, although it's not enough because the way that the English Bibles work, there's like eight different words that get translated as sin. And they all have a different reference point. But the first one, uh, the biggest one, is used for some warriors that were part of the tribes of Israel. And they were a special little elite band of warriors. And they would, they would use a sling. So like before or maybe during times where some had bows and arrows, your archers are in the back and your, your sword fighters are up front. These guys were in the back with a sling. But what made these guys weird is they're all left-handed. It's a whole group of left-handed slingers. Now, I don't know. Uh, we got a couple left-handers in here. If you're better with your aim than right-handers. But these guys were, right? They never missed, it said. Now, again, understand, I'm sure once in a while one of them missed. The point is, generally, they didn't miss. But that word miss, there's the word sin. They never sinned. Now, it's not talking about that they weren't sinful and unclean. It means that when they slung the stone, the stone always hit its mark. John writes that you might never miss your mark. Does that help a little bit, I hope? But if anyone does miss his mark, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Remember, his blood covers you. He's the propitiation for our sins. There's another big word. And uh, this is probably like the worst example I could use in a pulpit, but it really will help you remember it. Okay, So everyone in America before maybe 10 years ago knows a song about propitiation sung by a a pagan group, uh, the Rolling Stones. It goes like this. I can't get no propitiation. It just means satisfaction. That's all it means, okay? So again, look at the text. Jesus is the satisfaction for us missing the mark. And not for us only, but for the whole world. Ah. So, Rewind this here. He's writing to us knowing that we've said we're sinners, knowing that the blood of Jesus covers us, and he wants us to then try not to miss the mark. That as we walk together through this world, we want to stay on course, recognizing that we've already been paid for. It's not about earning your salvation. It's about believing that you're saved and remembering what you've been saved from and being glad not to return to that vomit to eat it like a dog, but happy instead to lift up your head. Again, glad not to wallow in the muck with those who have no hope, but to watch for the end of the world. Glad, even when you suffer, to know that the suffering now does not compare with the life that will be revealed when he comes again. Now, even when you lose things, house, home, friend, family, you will know that it will be restored to you 100-fold in the day of resurrection. Yes, he wants you to have that confidence since you have been baptized into Christ. All right, jump over to chapter 2, verse 15. And your pew Bible is just right on the same page, next column, a little ways down. He's just told us that the sins of the whole world have been paid for by Jesus. And remember, this same John writes in John 3, 16, I hope you've heard and memorized that one, that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. So there's an amazing thing going on here where God loves the world 
and he saved the world, but you're not supposed to. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, I don't think that means you're supposed to hate your neighbor because he's going to explain what it means next. That if you love the world, that means you love what verse 16 says, the desires of your flesh, the desires of your eyes. ESV says the pride of life, pride of possessions, right? The idea that I'm going to make it work now and I'm going to have what I want now and nothing shall stop me from getting that now. If you seek that, then you walk in darkness still. You're loving the world that's dying, right? Because he says, verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires. This is not an easy thing to train your heart for because your heart is never really going to come all the way along for the ride. That isn't say isn't to say that God does not give you a new heart. He does. He regenerates your heart to see that your heart is deceitful. He regenerates your mind to see that your mind at times wants bad things. And so you are in a fight against yourself as a Christian. But that fight is just this, to remember the temptation is to love this world and forget the next one. The knowledge of Christ being risen from the dead, he is risen, means that, means that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. The next life is what we're walking through this life toward. Just as the people of Israel walked through a desert waste where the best thing in the world really wore out by the time they were done and rotted if they tried to keep it too tight, that's the manna, the best thing in the world was nothing to compare to the flowing milk and honey and the beautiful cities they would inherit where they were going. Okay, so again, we're going to skip the section on the Antichrist, but if you want to hear about the section on the Antichrist, you can find how to read the Bible, 1 John part 2 on YouTube later this afternoon, because I'll talk about it at the later service today. But let's jump ahead now to chapter 5, verse 1. So all the way to the other side of the book. I'm going to read chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. There's that, the world again. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, we could spend time on what it means to be born of God, believing in Jesus, but I really want to address this idea of the commandments because John is going to speak very boldly about his expectations of you as a disciple of Jesus. And again, by this we know that we love the children of God, that we keep and obey his commandments. Now, the way the Lutherans often talk about law, gospel, and the Ten Commandments, we go out of our way to make them seem hard. 
we try to tell you how there's this second use of the law thing. And so if you rightly judge yourself by the commandments, you'll find that you don't keep them, right? Because to murder is not only to murder, it is to harbor hatred in your heart, is to actually even be angry with anyone ever. And so see, you were angry this week. You're a murderer. You haven't kept the commandments. You're a sinner. You need to be saved. Now, that's true but it also is kind of only part of the story. Because while indeed, if you have no Jesus to save you and you go into judgment day, having never murdered, but having hated people all the way, yeah, you're going to hell and for good reason. But you're a Christian now. And so your hate doesn't matter now in the sense of the final day. It's covered by Jesus on the final day. That's not a worry you have to have. What you have to worry about now is what your hate now does to people around you. And this is what he means then by keeping the commandment that you find I've become angry. You find I don't like this person. Now, what do you do with that? Do you follow your flesh and its desire? Or do you remember it's been paid for by the blood of Jesus? And so you are making a fight to keep your hands from the evil your heart desires and to drive your mouth to speak the good that you know God wants you to speak in the Bible. And now I can make this even easier, and John does, because he says at the end of the day, this just means love. That's all it means, is that you try to love. Now, what makes that hard is the word love is about as useless as the word sin is these days. It's so vanilla and empty. In fact, it's used by people who are liars with seared consciences to try to make you do evil things. You're supposed to love your neighbor by burdening your conscience and doing whatever somebody says. And if you don't, you're not nice, you're not loving. That's not what love means. What love means is to be a person who sees the other as more valuable than yourself because you're confident in your own value in God's sight. It doesn't mean you don't have value. It means you don't need to defend it. You don't need to justify it. You can look at your enemy and have confidence that your enemy is nowhere near as safe as you because he doesn't understand the light like you do, because he walks in darkness unlike you, And rather than make the darkness worse, throw a stumbling block in his way, you can say, that poor fool, how can I be good to the one who has been evil to me? And of course, our Lord Jesus talks this way. He says, what reward do you have if you only do good to those who are good? Aren't you then just like the pagans? But when you do good to those who don't deserve it, now you're like your father, who knowing that you were sinful and unclean, did the good of saving you, showed the mercy to you. That's the commandment we've had from the beginning. That's the summary of all the Ten Commandments. All it is, again, is summed up in when Jesus says, learn what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And so we as Christians are a people who, we don't perfect this. We don't do this without any failings ever, but we want to. We want to be a place of mercy, a people of mercy. We want our family tables to be filled with people who know they messed up today. They're still my family. I love them. And then also you come here to this place and it's the same reality at this table. This person does this. This person does that. 
I just can't even like that person. But it doesn't matter. Jesus' blood covers that person, and so they deserve the best from me at every moment, yes? And this, then, is the faith that overcomes the world. Not that we would love perfectly, but that we've believed that's what the love of God is, and therefore we continue in prayer, that we would be people of such love with the knowledge that we got from Zephaniah a few moments ago, that when Christ comes back and he rolls up this world like a scroll, yeah, that's what we're going to be and nothing but. And again, that our faith now is that deposit come early, the, the inkling of love, first seen in the blood of Jesus for you. And then as that mercy is given, you will not be able to, <clears throat> excuse me, you will not be able to avoid wanting to show mercy to others. You're going to know it's right. In fact, if you're going to keep with your flesh, you're going to have to tell yourself to do it at a certain point. You're going to have to fight against the spirit within you to have your flesh have its way. And you're going to know while you're doing it that it's happening and you're not going to love that. Now I'm telling you, don't do that. John says, that's what he's writing for. Don't do that. Huh? Let God's love have its way with you. Believe it is better to give than to receive. Understand that the mercy of God is sufficient. No, in confidence, there's nothing you can do to turn away your sonship in Jesus Christ. For his love lavishes itself upon you. You've been called his heir. And so also then see that the commandment to love is not burdensome, but is to be set free in who Jesus is and what he has done and what he's coming again to do. I'd love to give you more, but we're at 33 minutes. Can you believe it? In the name of Jesus. Amen.